This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. This is Case Closed, your weekly hour of crime from radio's golden age, which you can find every Wednesday at relicradio.com. Our first story this week is from Nightbeat. We'll hear The Doctor's Secret, their episode from August 21st, 1950. After that, it's Whitehall 1212 and The Case of Donald Sims, their story from January 20th, 1952. This is Randy Stone. I cover the night beat for the Chicago Star. Stories start in many different ways. This one began with a stay of execution and ended with the death of a man's soul. Night Beat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. I didn't like it. I didn't like any part of it. It's bad enough that a guy's got to die without being constantly reminded of it. Okay, so you can't live forever. I know that. But when the time comes, it should just end quick. With no warning, no anticipation, no nothing. Just like that. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not scared of the idea. That is, no more than the next guy. I just don't like it constantly tossed up in my face. That's why the managing editor could never sell me on covering the hospital beat of the city morgue. And an obituary is something that absolutely refuses to write itself out of my typewriter. That's what I was trying to tell the guy on the desk when he told me over the phone I had to go down to Joliet to cover an execution. Sure, Randy, I understand, but... No, you don't understand. He had sent somebody else. How many times I gotta tell you I got no one else? How about one of the guys on the day side? Hold him over. Impossible. What's the matter? Afraid to shell out for a little overtime? Cut it, Randy. It's late now. You're going to have to go some to make it as it is. Now, look, Garrison, I don't want to pull rank on you. But when I took over this night beat, the managing editor assured me my assignments were completely my own. I found my own stories where I pleased. That was all through being a leg for the desk. Well, I've got news for you, Randy. Mm -hmm. When he gave me this job, he told me he was making me an executive, and all I'd have to do was sit back and tell the boys what to do. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm telling you, get down to the depot and on that train as fast as you can. The execution has got to be covered. You better hurry. There's a storm coming up. So I grabbed a cab. It was clouding up. When I got to the depot, the sky was as black as the city editor's heart. It wasn't my idea of traveling with her, but it's only a short run. We made it to Joliet before the storm broke. The train ground to a stop. It started to rain, and when I was in the taxi on the way out of the prison, it really came down. A perfect setting for the undignified event I was going to be forced to witness. I showed them my press card at the main gate, and they took me straight to the warden's office. Randy Stone, warden, Chicago Star. Come in, Randy. Oh, I'm sorry you had to come down on a night like this. Well, I can take the storm better than the execution, I'm afraid, warden. Oh, then you haven't heard. Heard what? Well, you should have been notified. There's been a stay. A reprieve? When? Yes, the governor ordered a stay of execution about an hour ago. His office was going to telephone the press. Oh, it's too bad you had to come all the way down. It's a great pleasure, Warden, I assure you. Come next election, I might even vote for the governor. Well, I'm pretty relieved myself. I've executed a lot of men, Randy, and I don't like it. 
It's been pretty tough having to kill a man, even when the law tells you you've got to. It's the toughest part of any warden's job, Randy. They're all human beings, and everyone with a story. Yeah, but not the kind I like to write. Thank you. Uh, you were driving back to Chicago? No, no, I came by train. Well, there's no train for a couple of hours. You're welcome to wait here. Oh, thanks, warden. I think I'll go on into town. Maybe catch a newsreel theater for train time. No, excuse me. Sure. Hello. Yes, this is the warden. Oh, oh, Dr. Graham. Uh, yes, doctor. Uh, well, I, uh, uh... Just a minute, please. Randy. Yeah. Yeah, pick up the receiver on that other phone and uh, listen to this. Okay, sure. Yes, doctor. I said I wanted to come over and visit you, warden. Well, are you sure you want to come out here to the prison, doctor? Yes, warden. I feel I've got to come out there. I have to... Yes? have to see it. have to see what, doctor? Electric chair. I've got to see it. Are you sure you want to see it, doctor? Yes, I've got to. Got to. You can't let me, warden. But you've telephoned so many times before, doctor, and uh, then you haven't come. I couldn't. Could I? Well, all right. If you feel that it's really what you want, you come ahead and I'll take you over and show you the chair. Thanks, Warden. This time I'll come. Thanks. That's all right, Doctor. Goodbye. What is this? This is supposed to be some kind of a joke? <sighs> I'm afraid not. Well, how morbid can a guy get calling you this time of the night so he can come out and see the electric chair? Oh, no, he won't come. He never does. You mean this goes on all the time? Whenever he's been drinking like this. But a doctor, what did you say his name was? Graham. Howard Graham. Well, it doesn't make sense. No rhyme or reason. No, he has a reason, all right. A pretty grim one. It'd have to be. Mm. His son was executed in the electric chair. Oh. Oh, that poor doctor, no wonder. He hasn't ever forgotten it. What did the boy do? He killed a girl. She was going to have a baby. They weren't married, and I guess he couldn't bear to disgrace his family. Oh, and so he did this to his family instead. Theodore Dreiser wrote a book once called An American Tragedy. How many times do these things have to happen before people learn? It doesn't seem they ever learn, Randy. Oh, that poor old doctor. Why does the guy go on torturing himself like that? I don't know. Maybe what psychologists call a substitution of guilt. The father feeling guilt for the crime committed by his son. Yeah, but, but why? Why? Who knows, Randy? You're the writer. You're the one that's supposed to have the answers about people. Yeah, yeah, a lot of answers I got. Uh, mind if I look this guy up? No, no, not at all. I'll give you his address. Might be a column in it. Uh, I wouldn't bother him with too many questions, Randy. It's tough enough to forget as it is. He doesn't seem to be doing too much forgetting by himself. The warden sent me into Joliet in his own car. We got to the business district. I switched to a cab and headed out to the doctor's address. If my life depended on it, I couldn't have told you why I suddenly had this intense desire to see Dr. Graham. I'd like to think it wasn't just a morbid interest in the other guy's grief, but then it wasn't in my line of duty either. Maybe my reason was as simple as the question, why? But if I'd stopped to analyze it, then I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have gone. Graham lived in one of the better residential neighborhoods, a two-story brick house looking smug and comfortable behind a wide apron of lawn. I left the cab at the curb, walked up the path to the front porch. There was a light on inside. I rang the bell, waited for somebody to answer the door. The rain had let up for a while. You rang the bell? Yes, I hope I didn't disturb you. What is it you want? Are you Mrs. Graham? She's dead. Oh, I... Killed herself. Oh, I'm sorry. Over the boy. 
I didn't know. I thought everyone knew. I'm the housekeeper. Well, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm a newspaper reporter, and, and I... And you'll be next. You wait and see. Dr. Graham? Well, who else you think I meant? Well, I don't know, lady. I, uh... Is the uh, doctor in, please? <laughs> this time of evening? You have any idea where he might be? Where he always is. Not here. Does he have an office? Yeah, but I don't know what for. I don't have no practice left. Would you mind giving me the address? Morrison Building, downtown. But it won't do you no good. Oh, you don't think he'll be there? Yeah, more likely in the hotel next door to the Morrison Building. In the bar. I see. Drinking himself to death. Well, uh, thank you. If he ain't killed himself already. Yeah, thank you very much. Hmm. Good night. I thought things like that only came out on Halloween. Oh, well. I climbed back in the cab more curious than ever about Dr. Graham and the macabre set of characters and circumstances that seemed to have been lousing up his life. There was still an hour and a half until train time, so I asked the cabbie to drive me downtown to the Morrison building. The night watchman took me up in the elevator. I walked down the dim hallway to a door marked Dr. Graham, but the housekeeper was right. The doctor wasn't in his office. The night watchman evidently expected me to be coming right back down. The elevator was still waiting at the end of the hall when I got back. Now. Yeah, I was looking for Dr. Graham. Yeah, figured you were. Well, he's not in. The office is dark. I could have told you that. Well, well, what did you let me come up here for? Why didn't you tell me he wasn't in? You didn't ask me. I'm one for minding my own business. They come and go, but that's when they ask me. I don't butt in. Well, I'm asking you, do you happen to know where I might find Dr. Graham? Well, you might find him at home. All right, I just came from there. The only other place would be is next door. What, in the hotel? In the bar. Oh, swell, swell. Would you mind taking me down? Sure thing. You seem to know the doctor pretty well. Mm, oh, so. You know his son, too? The one that, uh, had the trouble? He got the electric chair. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you know him? That's right. That's what? Knew the girl, too. The one was killed. You did? Yeah, oh, one of the old doctor's patients. Rode her up in the elevator quite a few times. Doc is, uh, not doing too well these days, I hear. No, kind of gone out of practice, you might say, since the trouble. Uh huh. Mm. Oh, thank you. I think I'll try and find him next door. By the way, what does the doctor look like? Uh, don't you know him? No, no, that is, I've only talked to him on the telephone. Oh, well, he'd be at the bar. He's a kind of middle-aged man. Uh, heavy shit. It looks like a doctor. You'll know him, all right. I'm sure I will. I went back out to the street and told the cab driver not to wait. Then I went next door to the hotel, walked through the half-empty lobby and into the bar. Just like the watchman said, I didn't have a bit of trouble spotting Dr. Graham. He was the only customer in the place, sitting on a high stool at the far end of the bar. I climbed up alongside him and motioned to the bartender who had his ear in the jukebox. Hey, uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's it gonna be? Uh, make it a gimlet. Uh, that's a... Gimlet? Yeah, you know, it's, uh... It's in a martini glass. Of course I know. You trying to tell me how to run my business? <laughs> no, no, certainly not. I just didn't know if you understood. Seventeen years. I've been mixing drinks in the finest place. Oh, look, fella, now, don't get me wrong. Shaved ice, dried gin, little sugar, lemon peel, and lime juice. That's right. That's right. There's no way. Only. Lime juice got to be imported. Oh, oh, I didn't know that. We ain't got it. Not imported. Well, that's all right. Just make it a martini, then. In taste, you can't tell the difference if lime juice is imported or regular. So I make you a gimlet. 
That's what you order, huh? Sure, sure. Make it any way you like. Import it regular. What's the difference? Nobody ever complains before. I'm not complaining. Look, what's the matter with everybody in this town? Everybody I meet tonight gives me double talk. All I want is a drink. I don't care what you bring me. Bring the gentleman what he wants, bud. Okay, doctor. <laughs> well, thank you, doctor. That's all. I can really use a drink tonight. I'm a little on the jumpy side. Mm, nerves can be treacherous thing. No, it's uh, it's more than that. I've been over to the state prison. Tonight? Yes, I came down to witness an execution. In the electric chair? It was called off. There was a stay of execution. I've seen many men die. I, I'm a doctor, you know. Yes, I know. But I've never seen a man die in the electric chair. Well, it's pretty rough. Have you ever seen the electric chair? Uh, yeah. Would you mind very much describing it to me? Well, I'd rather not, Doctor. See, I, I know who you are. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Dr. Gray. Yes, my name is Randy well, Stone. Gimlet, just like you are. Okay, thank you very much. As I was saying... Aren't you going to taste it? Well, sure, sure, later. Well, maybe you don't like it. Well, sure, I like it. Here, if it'll make you happy. Oh, yes, it's fine. It's just fine. Sure, I told you. I'll call you when I'm ready for another one. Seventeen years. I mixed some drinks. He tried to tell me how to make a kiss. As I was saying, Doc, you know, I know who you are. I was in the warden's office tonight when you telephoned. Warden's office? Yeah. I'm a newspaper man. It's only fair that you know, because I want to ask you a couple of questions. Now, what kind of questions? They're rather personal. Well? For one thing, why do you keep on telephoning the warden? Didn't he tell you? Yeah, he told me. Because I want to see the electric chair. Now, look, Doc, that's not going to help. You know it isn't. I know I'll never be able to go and see it, but I've got to call him. It's a compulsion. I drink and I telephone him, and I drink some more. It's kind of a circle. But don't you realize you'll never forget that way? You're just torturing yourself. No, no, I... Down deep, I... I know why I call him. But, uh... It's a secret. Nobody's supposed to know. You see, I... I'm the one that's guilty. It should have been me who died in an electric chair. Look, Doc, I know how you feel, but you got it all wrong. A father can't go on being responsible for the sins of his son. Even in the Bible, it's the other way around. Try to bring up your kids the best way you know how, but after they reach a certain point, there's nothing you can do. You did your best, it just didn't work out. No, no, you don't understand. It was my child. I'm... The one who's guilty. I'm the one who should have paid. That's why I telephoned the warden. That's why I got to see the electric chair. NBC is bringing you Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy as Randy Stone. By the time the bartender got through proving to me that he really knew his business, it got to be kind of late and just a little wet out, so I missed my train. As the evening grew more and more confused, so did Dr. Graham. Somehow, after talking to him, I didn't feel quite so sorry for him. He, he seemed to be enjoying his strange fixation on the electric chair. It was different from just the father's grief. The guy seemed to be going off his rocker. I vaguely remember pouring him into a cab after the bar closed and then checking into the hotel for the night. When I woke up, the sun was beating through the window. I put in a call to Chicago and got the paper on the phone. Good afternoon, the star. Afternoon? Honey, is it that late? I beg your pardon? What time is it? Oh, 
one moment, please. I'll give you our information, sir. No, wait a minute, honey. It's Randy Stone. Why didn't you say so? Gee, everybody's been calling for you all morning. Oh, fine, fine. Give me the desk, hmm? Just a second, Randy. I'm ringing. Thank you. City desk. How are you, Phil? Randy Stone. Randy, for the love of Mike, where have you been? In Joliet, where you sent me last night, remember? I know, but that was last night. Where are you now? In Joliet. But the execution was called off. Why didn't you come back? I had to stay over. There was a storm. Oh, rats. The trains were running. Well, maybe next time you won't send me out of town on an assignment I didn't want in the first place. All right, all right. When are you coming back? As soon as I can get dressed and catch a train. Get dressed? At this time of day? I work the night beat, remember? When you dayside lads are catching up on your beauty sleep, I'm working. Just exactly what kind of work were you up to last night, Stone? Or does that come under the heading of personal? Personal, my eye was following up a contact, the human interest you're on, the warden touted me on. Well, it fizzled out, that's all. Uh, there was a doctor here whose son was executed last year for murder. That's nice. Be sure and check in at the office when you get back. Okay, I'll see you later, Phil. Hey, Phil, you worry too much. Goodbye. <laughs> that guy's going to get himself a nose. Yeah. Mr. Stone. Talking. This is Dr. Graham. I met you in the bar last night. Do you remember? Oh, certainly. How are you, doctor? I wasn't sure whether you were still in the city. Well, I kind of overslept. By the way, how did you know I was staying over at the hotel? Why, you mentioned that you were going to last night before I left you. I didn't think you'd remember. You were feeling no pain when I put you in the cab, Doc. I always remember everything. That's my difficulty. Well, uh, what can I do for you, Doctor? I said a lot of foolish things last night. No, I don't think so. It was the alcohol talking, not me. Well, maybe the alcohol just made it a little easier for your heart to put it in words. Did you believe the things I said? Well, yes, certainly. Everything? Of course. I just didn't approve of everything. I was hoping you wouldn't remember. Well, unfortunately, I do. Yes. Unfortunately. I'm sorry, Doctor. It isn't good to remember some things. They cause such unhappiness. What are you trying to say, Doctor? I shouldn't want them to bring you unhappiness. That would be such a pity. You'd be better off dead... What the... Hello. Hello, doctor. Operator. Oh, is this the outside operator? No, this is the hotel operator. Can I help you? I was just talking with somebody and I was cut off. Can you connect me again? I'm sorry, sir, but that was an outside call and your party's disconnected. If you have the number, I will be glad to call it for you. No, no, thank you. No, thanks very much. Never mind. I have an idea my party hung up. <laughs> After that choice bit of dialogue, and before breakfast, mind you, I was convinced that the telephone, like the noble horse, had outlived its usefulness. I took a fast shower and climbed into yesterday's clothes and then stopped off at the barber shop in the lobby to get rid of the stubble on my chin. It was now after two o'clock. I could either have breakfast or stop at the bar to take care of the butterflies that seemed to be nesting in my stomach. The butterflies won out. My bartender friend of last night was back on duty listening to the same tired old recording. Yeah, yeah. What's it going to be? Ah, uh, hello. Uh, the doc around? No, no. A little early for him. What's it going to be? Gimlet? No, I don't think so. But you were drinking Gimlet's last night? Yeah, I know. You don't like them? Well, not today. Uh, thank you. I'll try, uh, try a stinger. You didn't like the lime juice because it wasn't imported. I loved it. I loved it. I just happened to want a stinger today. Something to settle my stomach. But stinger tastes like licorice. 
I know. It's the uh, anisette in the brain. My licorice is not good for the stomach. Maybe something with bitters. Oh, no, no. Not again. Look, just forget the whole thing. Forget I ever came in here. What's the matter? You mad? No, I changed my mind. I'm in no mood for another basic course in bartending. I think I'll have breakfast instead. With a little tomato juice and coffee under my belt, I felt some better. But not nearly so good as I would when I got out of this town and back to my own. I seem to be living upside down on the Ferris wheel ever since I got on that train yesterday afternoon. Or maybe it was just my subconscious still fighting against my undue familiarity with the general subject of death. Oh, I shook that ugly word out of my mind. After settling up with the cashier and checking the desk clerk about my train time, I made my formal exit from the hotel. The fresh air and the bustle of traffic picked me up and I started walking in the general direction of the train station. There was a dark blue sedan parked in front of the hotel and started up just as I swung out of the lobby, but I didn't pay any attention to it. Not until I got to the corner, that is, and started to cross the street. The car had been inching along behind me, and just as I stepped out into the intersection, its engine roared, and the car came straight at me. This was no accident. The car didn't stop. Whoever it was had deliberately tried to run me down. I got a fleeting glimpse of the rear of a blue sedan as it sped down the street. I couldn't make out the license number, but right above it was one of those little green crosses, a doctor's car. Dr. Graham, it must be. And he tried to kill me. I wasn't hurt, but I was mad. I couldn't believe that I'd almost been killed. It didn't make any sense. I couldn't figure out why Dr. Graham or anyone for that matter would want to kill me. Unless the poor guy was really unhinged and he resented my putting my nose into his affairs. But that'd make him more than just psycho, it would make him homicidal. And that was something I just couldn't walk away from now. I brushed some of the street off the seat of my pants and headed back to the hotel bar. There was a question or two I wanted to ask the fancy drink mixer. Well, you back again, huh? Yeah, same guy. How about turning off that tune, huh? What's the matter? Don't you like it? <laughs> I like it, but I've heard it before. Huh? Okay, okay. Gimlet? Uh, yeah, make it double. Okay, double gimlet. You see? I don't give you no argument. Mm -hmm. You say double, I give you double. Thank you, thank you. Say, has Dr. Graham been in here in the last hour since I was in before? Sure. You didn't see him? No. I told him he was looking for him. Well, I checked out of the hotel. Yeah, he was asking about you. He was asking about me? What do you want to know? Well, just if you ask me anything about him. Oh, I see. How long have you known him, Doc? Oh, I don't know. He comes here. Has he been coming here long? Oh, mostly since the boy was... You know. Yeah, I see. Uh, before that? Once in a while. Never drinks much before. He come here with his son? No, no. He come in sometimes with a girl, though. What girl? His patient. The girl the boy killed. They had a big argument in here one night. With the doctor and the girl? That's right. Doc kept saying he would kill his wife if she found out. Found out what? I don't know. Just if she found out. But the boy, I guess. Uh, about the boy or about himself? About the boy, of course. Then last night, why did he say the child is mine? I'm the one that's killing you. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? Now, sure, I must be crazy. It couldn't be true. So why would the doctor try to kill me? Who tried to kill you? When? Never mind, never mind. Tell me. Have you ever seen Dr. Graham's car? Sure, lots of times. What kind is it? Sedan. What kind of sedan? Blue sedan. Why? Now, where's your phone? Booth in the corner. Thank you. 
grand, 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 great space. Gordon and Gordon. Howard Graham. Albert Charles David Elmer Frederick Howard. Howard Graham, physician residence. Uh, Dr. Graham there? He ain't in. You know where I can reach him? It's urgent. He's at his office. Are you sure it's terribly important? I said he's at his office. I just talked with him there. Uh-huh. You're the man he was expecting? Uh, yes. Yes, I guess I am. Thank you very much. Now I knew it. Dr. Graham was a murderer. He was literally guilty, not just a substitution guilt. And last night he told me more than he wanted to. Sure, that's why he'd asked me on the phone if I'd believed him. He was as guilty as he could be. But of what crime? Once again, I took the elevator up to Dr. Graham's office, and this time he was in. I opened the door and walked into the reception room. Another door marked private was standing open. Inside, the doctor was waiting for me, seated at his desk, a small black revolver in his shaking hand. Come in. Well, I see you're expecting me, doctor. Yes, Expecting you. Close the door. Certainly. You know, don't you? Oh, yes. Uh, I know, but I can't understand it. I can't understand how any human being could possibly do such a thing. You know. But you'll never tell. Because I'm going to kill you. Oh, no, you won't, Doctor. Because you're afraid. You're a coward, Dr. Graham. You're afraid if you kill me, you'll be caught. Wouldn't be anyone left to blame it on this time. Wasn't your son. It was you who killed that girl, wasn't it? You know. She wasn't the boy's girlfriend at all. She was yours. Isn't that so, Doctor? Don't say that. An affair with one of your patients and you were afraid your wife would found out. Wasn't that it? You would have killed her. Well, what about this? Didn't this kill her? And your boy, your own son. I don't see how no, anyone... No, no. It was his idea. He wanted to take the blame so his mother wouldn't ever find out. Find out. He would have killed her. He knew that. This way, it wouldn't be so hard on her, he said. The good lawyer could fix things so that he wouldn't have... so that he wouldn't have to... Die in the electric chair? The electric chair. <laughs> now you know why I had to see. Why I had to keep telephone. Why I could never go and see you. You're right, Mr. Stone. Well, that's why you're not going to kill me now. You're afraid. You know you're safe as long as I don't tell. And I won't tell, Dr. Graham. The police will never know. You'll never go to trial and you'll never be sentenced. You'll never see the electric chair, Doctor. <laughs> Every hour of every day, you'll pay for your crime. You'll die again and again and again. God pity you. <laughs> well, here I sit doing the one thing I swore I'd never do. Writing an obituary instead of a story. Dr. Howard Graham, age 51... Died from heart attack following confession of murder. 
Let me see, what day is this? Monday, August 21st, 1950. Contributing cause, death of son, death of wife, and of his own soul. Yep. But who are we to judge? As it says in the book, leave him to heaven. Copy, boy. Nightbeat, starring Frank Lovejoy, is produced and directed by Warren Lewis and edited by Larry Marcus. Tonight's story was written by Warren Lewis with music by Frank Worth. The part of the doctor was played by Bill Johnstone. Others in tonight's cast were Ted Von Elk, Irene Tedrow, Wilms Herbert, Jay Novello, and Inga Yola. Frank Lovejoy will next be seen in Milton Sperling's production, Three Secrets, released by Warner Brothers. Listen next week at this time and every week as Randy Stone searches through the city for the strange stories waiting for him in the darkness. Nightbeat came to you from Hollywood. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Two stellar chime stars will be back on NBC very soon. Beginning Tuesday, September 19th, that master clown Art Linkletter comes back to prove that people are funny. And Fanny Bryce returns as Baby Snooks in seven weeks to add to NBC's Top Tuesday of Chime Stars. Listen now for the first piano quartet on NBC. Whitehall, one, two, one, two, quickly, please. This is Scotland Yard. For the first time in history, Scotland Yard opens its secret files to bring you the authentic, true stories of some of its most baffling cases. These are the true stories, the unvarnished facts, just as they occurred, reenacted for you by an all-British cast. Only the names of the participants have for obvious reasons been changed. The stories are presented with the full cooperation of Scotland Yard. Research on Whitehall 1212 is prepared by Percy Hoskins, chief crime reporter of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper. Here are the participants in Scotland Yard case number 505-MR-074. Donald Sims, the cabinet maker. I have some theories. Albert George Corcoran, the man who owned a gun. I tried to get it back from him. Patricia Emmons, who married a stranger. To my sorrow. Chief Inspector Grant McCrimmon of Scotland Yard. I think that Chief Superintendent John Davison has it here in the Black Museum. The one bit of evidence upon which the whole case turned. Shall we go inside and ask him to show it to us? Come on in. Oh, it's not half as gruesome in here as people would have you believe. So don't be squeamish. Good afternoon, Meg. This is Chief Superintendent John Davison, ladies and gentlemen. How do you do? I expect you're glad to see that this is not a chamber of horrors, as it is sometimes represented, and that I'm not a masked monster. This black museum, as we call it, is merely a repository for items that have figured in crimes of various sorts. It's regrettable that so many of those crimes were murder. These things are here for a purpose. It's a curious fact that criminals are seldom original in their approach. Here are informative, tangible objects that are often of enormous help to us. Hence, for your information, the Black Museum. 
Now, I think Chief Inspector McCrimmon here wants you to see what we have on our case 505-MR-074. And here it is. A brass cartridge case from a Browning automatic pistol. You'll note it still has traces of a sticky tape on it. And some photomicrographs of this case and of another similar one. That's all there is, Meg. Well, they were quite adequate, John. Yeah, they earned the hangman another ten pounds. I was quite astonished when I received the call. Chief Inspector McGrimmon here. His Majesty will speak to you, sir. His Majesty? Say, who is this? My name is George, sir. Well, uh, I say, sir, I mean... Uh... I am not the King of England, Chief Inspector, although my name is George also. Oh. I have been exiled from my own country for some years. I have been in residence in London, however, for some time. Yes, sir, uh, Your Majesty. I have just taken a house in Belgravia. Oh, now I know who you are, sir. You're King George of... Precisely. Look here, Chief Inspector. I went around to my new place this morning. Yes, sir. And, and I was unable to get in. Oh, some of your enemies, sir, uh, from your own country... Oh, I'll have special branch get onto it no, at once. No, 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 it's not that at all. I am locked out. I, I don't quite understand, sir, uh, Your I Majesty. I can't get in. Oh, you mean there's no one in the house, sir? Uh, my housekeeper, Miss, Miss Jessica Holmby, has been staying there alone, but she doesn't seem to be there. I'm a little alarmed. Your Majesty, do you suspect she I has... I have no cause to suspect her of anything beyond the fact that she seems to be missing. Uh, but uh, I'm a little... Uh, uneasy about uh, trying to enter. Bombs. I have many enemies, Chief Inspector. And Scotland Yard men are expendable, are they not, sir? Well, I'll investigate at once, Your Majesty. The address is... Thank you. Hey, we know the place, sir. Preliminary report of Chief Inspector McCrimmon's investigation dictated by himself to Miss Sheila O'Malley, Scotland Yard stenographer. A careful search of four of the ground room floors failed to disclose the presence of anything resembling a bomb of any sort. But upon entering the quarters assigned to the housekeeper, Miss Jessica Holmby, an important discovery was made. The body of Miss Holmby, aged 41, was found seated in an armchair opposite the door. She had been shot in the head. The body was identified by the King's equerry, Monsieur Langlois, who accompanied us. Item, a brass cartridge case, apparently from a Browning automatic pistol, caliber 38, was found on the floor near the door, thus establishing the probable position of the killer when the shot was fired. Signed, Grant McKimmon, Chief Inspector, CID. There was but one other possible clue. The torn corner of a card which was found in the corner of the room. There was nothing in the room or the housekeeper's belongings that it might have been torn from. We kept it. Sergeant Peter Monk, who had been assigned to the case with me, presented the most immediately useful clue. I just thought it might be worthwhile, Chief Inspector, to have a look in the mailbox. I was lucky. Well, let's see it, Peter. Hmm. Postmark Brighton. Well, she'll never open it. Hmm. My darling Jessica, won't you please write me or telephone me here? I've been trying to reach you by telephone for two days, but there is no answer. I am frantic. All my love... Poopsie. Poopsie? Oh, what a frightful name. You suppose it's a man? A pet name, no doubt. It's revolting. When was it mailed? The day before you found her. Well, see if you can find Poopsie or Brighton, Peter. Perhaps he or it can talk as well as he can write. Quite a job, sir. No, I don't want you going up and down Brighton front crying, Poopsie, Poopsie. People will follow you with a butterfly net. I was thinking of that, sir. Telephone Jessica's sister in Kensington. She's probably heard of them. Uh, yes, sir. 
Her sister knew Poopsie fairly well, she said. The man with a revolting pet name was Donald Sims, a cabinet maker, 39 years old, and he worked in a penny peep show in Brighton. She gave us his address, and Peter Monk and I took a trip to that seaside resort. Uh, we found the house, and we met Mr. Sims. I will not say that name again. It didn't fit this tall, curly-haired fellow at all. He crushed my hand. How do you do, sir? And this is Sergeant Peter Monk. Won't you sit down? Oh, thank you. Thanks. I suppose you want to talk to me about the late Miss Holmby. You knew her quite well, did you not? We were to be married in a month. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Yes. We kept it a secret. We kept it secret. Not even her sister knew our plans. I suppose it was she who told you about me. Uh, yes. I'm afraid she didn't like me very much. Oh, why? Oh, I'm sure I don't know. Sisters are often like that. Aye. I was very much opposed to the idea of her becoming housekeeper to the king. Oh? So many odd people about, you know. People with grievances and all that. I thought it was dangerous being there all alone and whatnot. Dealing with foreigners. Ah, she. <clears throat> I'm very much of the opinion that one of these foreign people is responsible. Aye, we considered that. We're making a thorough check of everyone who visited the place. I hope you are. Uh, how long had you known Miss Holmby, Mr. Sims? About eight months, I think. It was rather a case of love at first sight. Mm -hmm. We were very much in love. Uh, were you in the habit of visiting her often? Oh, quite frequently, yes. But I've been very busy recently, and I tried telephoning her instead. As you know, I was quite unable to reach her for several days, and then things happened. If I'd only gone up to London, I might have been able to prevent it, at least. I keep thinking so. Well, I misdoubt you could have done anything. I would have given my life for her. Well, uh, I loved her, gentlemen. <coughs> Your uh, wedding plans were almost completed, then? Yes, I'm most terribly depressed about all this, gentlemen. I, uh, I can sympathize with you, sir. Yes. Could I offer you a small libation, gentlemen? I have a fresh bottle of Glenlivet in the cupboard. Well, thank you, no, sir. I never touch it, sir, thanks. You don't mind if I do, then? No, not at all. I've done nothing but sit here in my room and drink. All alone, since I heard of this. I'm a little surprised that you have not yet been up to London, Mr. Sims. Sir? Huh? I couldn't bring myself to go to that place where she died. Are you sure you won't have a small libation? Thanks. Uh, we must be getting back to London. Oh, surely you don't have to go at once. I'm afraid we must. Thank you for your time, Mr. Sims, and let me assure you again of our sympathy. Oh, I wish you'd stay a little longer. I have some theories I should very much like to pass on to you. Well, we should be talking to you again, sir, I fancy. You know, if what? We, if we discover anything more... All right, or... uh, we may need your help. Oh. Well, slanter more, gentlemen. Slanter. Hey, come along, Monk. Right, sir. I'm sorry you gentlemen won't join me in a small libation. No, thank you. We shall undoubtedly be seeing you. Find the assassin of my love. Hey, we shall try... Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Mr. Sims. Oh, goodbye, gentlemen. And thank you. Poopsie. 
Dreadful, isn't he? Well, he'd, he'd impress a woman. Well, let's walk over to the seashore and see how he impresses some of his fellow workmen. You're suspicious of him, aren't you? I'm trying very hard not to be suspicious of him, Monk's old boy. We tramped along bright in front with the din of the dance band in our ears for a good while before we came across anyone who knew Sims well enough to discuss him with us. At last, a Brighton rock huckster at whose place of business we stopped admitted knowing him well. Yes, I know Johnny Sims. I knows him well enough that I don't want never no dealings with him. Not no dealings whatsoever. <laughs> What's he done to you? Plenty. Brighton rock! All that bright rock. Take a bit of bright rock home for the kids, missus. Only a bobble stick. Ah, uh, chip. Plenty enough, mate. What? Well, I can't prove what he done to me, but I can have me su- suspicions, can't I? He won't pay me, and I don't hold with fellas what commits bigamy anyhow. Bigamy? Huh? Well, it ain't no secret, I'm telling you, mister. He got out of the stony lonesome not a year ago for marrying a bit of flap in Nottingham when he was already the husband and father of three kids and living with them right here in Brighton. Yeah. Take home a bit of Brighton Rock for the family. Here are. Only a bobber stick. Only a bobber stick. He was in prison? That big of me, as I said. Ain't no secret around here. Are you sure? Well, ask anyone around here about Poopsie. <laughs> He's a bad lot, mate, if you asks me. Oh, that's very interesting. Yes, indeed. Uh, him and me used to be friends thick as thieves we was, but not anymore, take my word for it. Not since he stole my gun. Stole your what? My gun, mate. My Browning automatic. Oh, it was quite legal. I still got the license. <laughs> That's all I have got. He took a fancy to it, he did, the stinker. Borrowed it from me. <laughs> Last I ever seen of it, the dog's body. Claimed he lost it. Didn't pay you for it? Not Poopsie, not him. Claimed he ain't got no money. What caliber was this gun? Eh? Oh, 38. Interesting, huh? I bought the gun because I rather fancy target shooting, see? Had a chance to fire it only twice. Down at my place over there on the downs. He was with me. He liked it, so he borrowed it from me. Last I see of the thing, I bet he still got it somewhere, hoping to sell it. My gun! Well, uh, thanks very much, Mr... Uh... Uh, Corcoran, sir. Albert George Corcoran, later the loyal regiment, now reduced to selling bright and bloody rock and starving to bleeding to death. Oh, well, I'll take a stick, Corcoran. Oh, here you are, sir. Thank you. Uh, I'll have one, too. Thank you, sir. Here you are. I say, sir, um, why was you so anxious to know about Poopsie Sims? Does everyone call him by that revolting name? He calls himself that, sir, the Og. Pay attention to your stomach, doesn't it? Hey, it certainly does. Was you think of him employing him, sir? They say he is a good cabinet maker, but Christ, what a stinker. Well, I don't think we shall employ him now, Cochrane. Oh, you'll come to a bad end, sir. You know, I'm inclined to agree with you, Cochrane. We walked to the nearest telephone box, and I called London, Whitehall, 1212. This is Scotland Yard. The Criminal Records Office, please. Criminal Records, sir? Yes, sir. Sergeant Hammond here. Criminal Records Office. Hello? Hammond? Chief Inspector McCrimmon here. Oh, yes, sir. How are you? Hey, what do you have on a fellow named Donald Sims of Brighton, sometimes known as Poopsie? about him quite recently. Uh, just hang on, sir. Uh, look, I think he's wanted, sir. Why, how very delightful, Sergeant. Hey, uh, hey. I'll wait. Uh, what's up, sir? Mm-hmm. Our Poopsie's a bad boy, it seems. <laughs> Worse than we think. 
Well, I'll tell you in half a moment. Are you there, sir? Aye. He's wanted for check fraud, sir. Traveling in rather high society, too. Well, how is that? One of the checks he forges on account of royalty, that King George. Oh, that king that's just taken a new house in Belgravia? Yes, sir. He's got the chief... He's got the chief equity for 400 pounds. Say no more. Monks and I will fetch him in, full of dew of Glenlivet in three hours' time. Accompanied by a slightly sozzled poopsie, Monks and I returned to London and deposited him for safekeeping on a charge of fraud. He promptly went to sleep on the floor of his cell in Bow Street. And Monks and I departed for a well-earned dinner of bubble and squeak, of which I'm inordinately fond. Oh, I also had two bottles of Guinness, I remember. Oh, the next morning, our prisoner safely incarcerated on his fraud charge, Monks and I departed again for Brighton. Monks, armed with a search warrant, went on to Sims' rooms, whilst I paid a visit to Cochrane, the Brighton rock man. Well, good morning, sir. I'm most happy to see you again, sir. I'm in need of further information this morning, Cochrane. What kind of information, sir? (laughs) About Poopsie? Oh, don't say that name so early in the morning, Cochrane. It it makes me ill. (laughs) We took him back to London yesterday. (laughs) You did, sir. Aye, on a charge of defrauding by check. (laughs) Good. Who are you, sir? I'm Chief Inspector McCrimmon of Scotland Yard. Oh, I thought you was Tex. I swear I did. Well, we are. Now, look here, Cochrane. You know, we may be able to get your gun back. No. But it won't be especially easy, you know. I know. It'll be very hard to identify, you see. Uh, the number was, uh, um... Oh, I don't remember the number. Oh, that's too bad. I wonder... Would you possibly have an empty cartridge case that was fired in the gun? Our ballistics laboratory could probably identify it that way. How? Oh, the, the firing mechanism always leaves marks on a cartridge case that are quite different from those fired by any other gun. Sort of uh, mechanical fingerprints, eh? Exactly. You see, no two guns in the world leave the same marks on the base of a shell. Let me see. Now, I did have one, I know. I I, I only fired two rounds with it before Poopsie borrowed it. I, I had one. Well, now, what did I do with it? You got it at home, perhaps? No, no, no. I had it here. Now, what did I do with it? Oh, come on, man. Think hard. I am thinking, sir. It's in your pocket, perhaps. No, I carried it for a long time, then I had some use for it. Let me see now. Uh... Oh, I know where it is. Good. Oh. Found it. Uh, let's see. It. Here it is. See, I used it for a spool to wrap this here sticky tape around. It was just the right size. <laughs> I see the mark she was talking about. Here, where the firing pin struck the primer. Are you sure that's from your gun, then? I swear to it. Hope to die, sir. Uh, you may have to swear to it. Or ain't no doubt about it. I'll match the gun all right. Every little mark it will. Here, sir. Let me take the tape off first. Oh, never mind. It's all right this way. Now, I wonder. One more thing. Yes, sir. Could you possibly find one of the bullets you fired with the gun? Well, I don't know, sir. I could find the spot where I fired them. It was in a chalk pit. Uh-huh. But whether them bullets are still there and whether I could dig them out... Well, I... we only need one. Sir. Eh? I know why you want that bullet. Uh-huh. You do? I know every gun leaves marks on a bullet so you can prove it comes from that gun and not no other. Aye, that's right. And what you want to do is compare one of my bullets with a bullet you think's been fired from it, too. Well, uh... Uh, Sir, uh, did, uh, did Poopsie murder somebody with my gun? I don't know, Cochran. Oh, no, sir. But you can help us find out. Sergeant Monk's painstaking search of Sims' rooms failed to discover the missing Browning pistol. 
but in a pocket of a jacket in his cupboard, Monks discovered a torn, crumpled card. It was the announcement of a marriage between Donald Sims and a Miss Patricia Emmons of Nottingham. So we telephoned the Nottingham police, asking them if it would be possible for Miss Emmons to come to London to see us. She was waiting for us at Scotland Yard when we returned. Yes, I married him. To my sorrow. And you did not know that he was married at the time? No, I did not. His wife died during his bigamy trial. Did you know that, Monk? Yes, sir. I discovered it today. I discovered a great many things about him. Oh? He's a bad man. Let it rest at that. Uh, this uh, is uh, one of your wedding announcements, is it not? Oh, I thought they were all destroyed. Oh, I do wish you'd destroy that one. I'm sorry, Miss Emmons. He was money crazy. He said he loved me, but I discovered he thought I had an income. When he found I had nothing, he deserted me. It was while I was trying to find him that I found he'd married me bigamously. Aye, we, we know about that. Now, uh, did you ever see a pistol in his possession, Miss Emmons? Pistol? Yes, of course. Could you describe it? A thirty-eight caliber Browning automatic pistol. I know about pistols. My Uncle James is a retired warrant officer in the Royal Army Ordnance Corps. Uh-huh. He was at the Woolwich Arsenal for years. And you'd testify in court that you saw that pistol in Sims' possession? Oh, I would indeed. May I ask why, please? I don't think you'd like to know why, Miss Emmons. You escaped with your life. <laughs> The cartridge case that Cochrane had given me, you know, the one that you saw in the Black Museum with the remains of sticky tape still on it, had been sent to the ballistics laboratory when we returned to Brighton. Kenneth Ogilvy, the technician, telephoned me, asking me to come up, which I did, and he sat me down before a binocular microscope. I hope your eyes are normal, Chief Inspector. I've adjusted the eyepiece to mine. Oh, I'm 20-20. Good. Now, this is a comparison microscope, you know. Here on this side... Uh, no, don't look in the eyepiece yet. No. This one is the cartridge found at the king's house with the victim. Aye. And over here is the one you got with the tape on it. Aye. Now look. Uh-huh. You see? Uh, just let me turn it a wee bit. How the mark of the firing pin is exactly the same on both shells. Aye. And the tiny scratches at the upper right. Aye, and these down here at the bottom, too. Uh, the ones that look like an H. Yeah, that's right. Well... I'd say they're from the same gun, all right. But will it convince a jury? Ah, don't worry about that, sir. When we get our photomicrographs prepared and labeled... Oh, if we only had the gun. I think it's only fair to warn you in advance, sir. A, a jury can believe just so much. But if they can't see the gun, only the cartridge case and the bullets that match the missing gun. Oh, we're in worse shape than I thought. What can I do... Sir, as uh, one good Scots Presbyterian to another, have you tried prayer? I'll not tell you whether or not I prayed. You can judge for yourself by the results. But on the theory that the greater crime is the more important, Donald Sims was sent to my office at New Scotland Yard instead of the police court where he was to be examined in the forgery case. He sat before me at my desk. Monk was in a chair beside me, and uh, Miss Virginia Emmons sat in the corner of the room. Now, uh, Sims was quite self-confident. You can't cross-examine me. You know better than that, McCrimmon. I'll uh, overlook your rudeness, Mr. Sims. 
I have no intention of cross-examining you. I have no questions to ask of you. Oh, what about your pal there? You. I don't want to know anything, Sims. Oh, what's she here for, then? Who, Miss Emmons? You've got nothing on me any longer, Virginia. I paid for it. She'll ask you no questions. McCrimmon here. Who? Cochran. Oh, he has. Good. Good. Well, send it up to Ogilvy in the ballistics laboratory, please. Aye. All right. Thank you. <laughs> He's found the bullet, Monk. Who? Uh -huh. oh, Cochran. What? No. But... Look here, Mr. Sims. This is a scrap of paper found alongside the body of Miss Jessica Holmby. This scrap exactly matches the torn wedding announcement Sergeant Monk found in your jacket pocket in your rooms. These comparison photographs show two cartridge cases. One was found at the scene of the crime. One was fired in a pistol which formerly belonged to the man Cochrane. A pistol which is known to have been in your possession. I will testify to that. Well... Ah, you've observed that I have asked you no questions, Sims. Is that correct? Yes. Hmm. Sergeant Monk and Miss Emmons are witnesses to that. Yes, that's, that's right. right. What are you trying to do? I am relating certain facts to you, Mr. Sims. Ah, here's another. The forgery case in which you are at present involved concerns the King's equity. Now, I do not refer to His Present Majesty of England, but... Uh, you know who I mean. Yes. Now, finally, our ballistics laboratory has in its possession a bullet fired from that pistol by the man Cochrane. They have also the bullet with which Miss Jessica Holmby was murdered. And they're about to compare the two to uh, demonstrate that both bullets were fired from the same gun, which is known to have been in your possession. Well, what are you going to do about it? I'm going to do exactly what you expect me to do. Donald Sims, I arrest you for the willful murder of Jessica Homby. And I warn you that anything you say will be taken down in writing and may be used in evidence. Now, I'll take the liberty of asking you one question. Do you wish to make a statement? What will happen to me? I don't know. Will they hang me? Will they hang me? You're not required to make a statement of any sort, Mr. Sims. Well, if you have nothing to say... Sergeant Monk... I killed her. Will you take this down, Sergeant? Yes, sir. I was talking to her at the King's house in Belgravia... She'd heard about the check... What check do I... you refer to, please, Mr. Sims? <laughs> the one I... I signed with the name of the King's query. It was for 400 pounds. The query had shown it to her, and when it came back from the bank, marked R.D., and she'd recognised my handwriting at once. She said he'd already lodged a complaint against me, but that she could find forgiveness in her heart because she loved me. She offered me 400 pounds of her own savings to make restitution and said 
we would forget about it and be married anyway. She, <laughs> she loved me, gentlemen. Please, Miss Emmons. We talked for a while, and then, as I took the money from her, the card fell out of my pocket as I took out my wallet. <laughs> Sorry. I, I started to pick it up. She'd evidently seen my name on it and asked, What's that? Reaching for it at the same time, I snatched it away from her, tearing off the corner you found. Uh, that uh, card you mentioned was the announcement of the wedding between you and Miss Emmons? Yes. Well, that's all there is to it. A frightful scene occurred between us. She became angry and I became violently angry. I, I found myself standing at the door with a pistol in my hand. I don't know how it got there, but she was dead, and the pistol was in my hand. Hmm. Uh, it's your opinion, then, that uh, you killed her? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Is that the whole of your statement, Mr. Sims? <laughs> They'll hang me. They'll hang me. I'll die. I feel... Read over your statement, Mr. Sims. They'll hang me. You think they'll hang me? Will you read and sign the statement, sir? <laughs> there is still plenty of time, Mr. Sims. Time ran out on Donald Sims. He was brought to trial at Old Bailey three weeks later. His statement to the Scotland Yard men, the statements he made in court, caused the jury to bring in a verdict of willful murder. He was hanged on a Friday morning at 8 o'clock, still weeping. You have heard the ninth in the series Whitehall 1212, adapted from the official files of Scotland Yard. Research is prepared by Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express. The stories for radio are written and directed by Willis Cooper and produced by Collie Small and Jack Goldstein. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Case closed for this week. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back next Wednesday with another hour. In between now and then, you can find more from Whitehall 1212, Nightbeat, Case Closed, all the other podcasts, and thousands of other old time radio shows at relicradio.com. If you'd like to help support Relic Radio, this podcast, all of them, and everything else, just visit donate.relicradio.com. Click on the link while you're on the website. Your support is how this is all made possible. Thank you very much to those who have. Thanks for joining me today. Be back next Wednesday with another hour of Case Closed.